0: We're getting right through here. We've, we've gone through almost 1,500 years of the church. And uh, thank you for sticking around and sticking with this as well. And we're going to be thinking a little bit about the churches in the New World. Last Sunday, we talked about the rise of denominations and how denominations got planted in locations in the eastern seaboard as America was being founded. And some of the questions that the uh, the churches in the New World began to um, ask themselves, and I think we can even ask ourselves the same questions today, are, is, what is what is revival? Um, how does revival happen? And is, prim- is riv- revival primarily a supernatural work of God, or is it something that is simply a matter of means and having a good preacher to to stoke and move people. Um, What is it that facilitates true religion or true moving of the affections of the heart? And uh, connected with these questions are a host of theological uh, assumptions that uh, people assumed during this time period. Uh, Maybe it's not always assumed today that uh, some of the assumptions that were in the 1700s, as people thought through what it means to be awoken by the Holy Spirit, uh, are not always uh, received the same way today. And so we're going to think about some of that uh, this morning. But we're going to largely focus on New England as the basis of the beginning of the first awakening. But we need to think through some of the circumstances that were occurring during that time period in New England. By 1662, the time of the Great Ejection in England. Last Sunday, we talked about how uh, the Church of England required a conformity to the Book of Common Prayer, and if ministers were not willing to uh, partner with the Church of England, they were going to lose their pulpits. And 2,000 ministers uh, were ejected in 1662, and. About the same time period in, in, in North America, the generations that had first moved to uh, have religious freedom, to be able to practice religion the way they saw fit, they were into the second and third generations of their own offsprings and some difficulties were beginning to develop. Um, many of the grandchildren of the first or rather, the parents of the first generation found that their children were not accepting the faith, even though they had been baptized into the faith. And they were not raising uh, they were not truly converted people, and this precluded them from being able to participate in the Lord's table. Now we have another problem. We have unregenerate, unbelieving uh, parents now having offspring but yet they're in a society now where everyone is expected to bring their child forward for baptism this is a problem and so by the third generation um, there was a lot of issues now starting to play and 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 come into effect and questions of church membership um, were being questioned and church membership was declining and nominal christianity was increasing throughout the North American uh, colonies. And to deal with this problem, the the Congregational Church invented a way of dealing with this called the Halfway Covenant, and it came about in 1662. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not ready for that slide, I guess. The Halfway Covenant um, was designed to allow baptism of grandchildren... of of unregenerate church members. Uh, This was baptism for parents who were unconverted. And it was designed as a way to say, well, we've got to at least be able to exert some influence upon these families, and if if the parents can't stand before the church and, and give a verbal testimony of how they have come to faith in Jesus Christ... And if they can't do that, what are we going to do with these babies? And so the halfway covenant was established that at least if they were not flagrantly immoral and provocative in society, we will allow their children to be baptized. And yet problems still continued. In In 1700, a man by the name of Solomon Stoddard, who was pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, Um, changed the halfway covenant again and basically said, if you're in my parish, you can come to the Lord's table and take communion whether you have a profession or not. And he believed that participating in the Lord's Supper was potentially a way for people to experience conversion while they're in the process of experiencing it. Um, he believed that it was a converting ordinance. Um, uh, Pastor Stoddard exercised a lot of influence in the Connecticut River Valley, which goes from Northampton uh, all the way down south uh, through, through Connecticut on the western side of the state. And uh, what potential problems would you see coming out of a policy like that? Or potential goods? What do you think? Yes, there can be a ritualism that develops. Absolutely. Now, positively speaking, there's a there's a wider opportunity to for people to hear the gospel. For example, they're not being excluded from the congregation, but they're they're being invited in to hear the gospel. But as as just was noted, there are cons to that because in the end, it tends to minimize the exclusivity of the gospel and the necessity of a genuine conversion to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Um, But despite these challenges, it was in this context that revival would occur because there were a lot of people who were, were truly nominal and society Christians and they were in, in the place where they could hear the gospel preached clearly and revival occurred in that setting. And so uh, the first great awakening occurred underneath of uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards. Sorry, I don't have as many slides as I think I do. <laughs> uh, that's, the top, that's the good-looking guy on the top with the, with the collar. Uh, that's uh, Jonathan Edwards there. He was born in 1703 in East Windsor, Connecticut, pastor's son. His uh, father was Timothy, his mother Esther Edwards, and uh, his grandmother uh, was Esther Stoddard, which was Solomon Stoddard's wife. Um, He entered Yale College at age 13, and uh, early in his life and ministry, um, he embraced uh, the Reformed Protestantism of his father. Um, when he was a very young man, he he had initial resistance to God's ultimate sovereignty over an individual and their salvation. Uh, he had very a lot of difficulty in his mind trying to accept what we would call double predestination, in which that God would potentially damn some people to to hell. Um, and that was the that was the orbit that he was living in, but he, when he finally came to peace with God's teaching from his perspective of predestination, he in his own heart had what Charles Wesley had was the warming of the soul. <laughs> Charles Wesley had a warming of the soul when he came to experience Christ. Uh, Edwards also had that when he humbled himself and, and just said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but, but yours be done. And, and for him, that was a converting moment in his heart, and his life. And uh, in 1727, he married Sarah Pierpont, uh, who resided in New Haven, Connecticut. And then uh, he, with his wife, uh, became the assistant pastor in Northampton Uh, His grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, was aging and he needed a younger assistant. And uh, then finally his grandfather passed and then he assumed the responsibilities of the church there in Northampton. And over 10 years, his first 10 years, uh, there were points of movement within his congregation in which people began to respond to his teaching. People began to awaken and wake up to the thought that they might not truly be converted. And they responded to his teaching. Um, there was a small revival that occurred in 1735, and it, it gave Edwards an opportunity to, to reflect on God's work. and He wrote what was called a narrative of, of revival that occurred. And that narrative was published in Boston, and then it was sent overseas to England. And many people started reading about God's working in Northampton, and he kind of became, in some ways, a little bit of a celebrity, in which people began to talk about the the, the amazing things that were happening on the western frontier in Massachusetts. And um, in 1741, there began the significant great awakening. And uh, Edwards described the event in his letters. He said, It was a very frequent thing to see a house full of outcries, fainting, convulsions, and such like, both with distress and also with admiration and with joy. And about the same time, there was a young child who, who lost his life, and um, a tragic accident occurred, and he gathered all of the youth within his parish together and preached to them about uh, uh, the flower being cut down early. And, and, and he, he, he preached a very moving sermon to that age group, and he says that the room was filled with cries, and when they were dismissed, almost all of them went home crying aloud through the streets in all parts of the towns, And they were all concerned about their standing before the Lord. And through those events, one town after another began to respond in similar fashion to the truths of the gospel as people began to see themselves as just a nominal Christian and needing to have the work of the Spirit uh, truly change them into being true Christians. Um, and so, some people would understand these displays of conviction of sin um, as totally appropriate. Others would say, "This is just this is excess, and this is this is crazy." What's happening? Um, not everyone was excited about these events, but revivals did occur uh, through the work of Edwards and also uh, George Whitfield, who is the the man just below uh, Edwards there at the top. And Edwards' ministry grew in this period, um, but something remarkable happened from 1772, 1742, excuse me, to 1745. As the as the as the there was a cresting of of excitement that occurred, and then people began to fall away. And he began to analyze what is it that truly marks a genuine revival in the life of a of a heart of someone's soul and so he he published a work called religious affections and he argued that true religion is in great part it does consist of holy affections now when we hear the word affection we might not that's not a word we would use today but it is somewhat related to the emotions but there is, he's saying there has to be an elevated sense within the soul um, that invigorates the will to respond. And he said basically, true religion consists so much in the affection that there can be no true religion without them. And he who has no religious affection is in a state of spiritual death. Um, he also tried to distinguish between true affections and false affections. And he said, well, there are false affections and, and there are true. A man's having much affection does not prove that he has any true religion, but if he has no affection, it proves that he has no true religion. The right way is not to reject all affections nor to approve all, but to distinguish between affections approving some and rejecting others. In other words... He came up with 13 different ways to test the sincerity of the f- and looking for the fruitfulness out of someone's emotional response, and I think that's a helpful. It was a helpful tool uh, to help evaluate. Um, what do you think? Does the Bible agree with Edwards's sense that there are true and that there are false affections? What's your opinion? What do you what do you what do you see in scriptures? Yes, Barb. Um because Mhm. Yes, he was. Yeah. That sometimes people will follow for reasons that are more of a selfish perspective. What they can gain out of, the, out of this new, this truth, this gospel—that's right. Um, even the parable of the sower in Matthew 13—it uh, teaches us that some people will respond with joy, but then they will wither away. So there may be there there's something to this that you have to take some time to evaluate. How are people responding? And what is the long perseverance that comes out of this? Um, and so he, he thought it was really important to, to analyze and seek proper definitions for true affections. Um, now, in his own congregation, because he had, had walked through a period of significant revival, we're talking about hundreds of people converting during this time period. And as, as he walked through this, he also recognized that there were some problems that the prior generation had set up, which created this situation of a highly nominal Christianity. And he recognized that the halfway covenant had been a problem, and his grandfather had exacerbated this. Um, but, in, so in 1748, Um, Edwards began to talk with people privately about his desire to change what his grandfather had set up in their community. And, as you can imagine, this led to no small controversy because it was what people had lived with for nearly 50 years. That's a pretty significant tradition. Well, uh, leading up to... uh, Leading up to 1750, he began to have the conversations with his congregation even more formally, even drafting new articles of a covenant that that everyone would would agree to and buy into. And uh, in 1750, uh, there was a congregational vote to dismiss Jonathan Edwards from his church. This is the same church that had this amazing revival is now kicking him out the door. Um, and he, he was dismissed. Um, and what's ro- so remarkable to me as a pastor is that even though he was dismissed on a, on, a, on a Friday through a congregational vote, a deacon came to him on Saturday and asked him if he would still be willing to preach the sermon on Sunday. <laughs> and he did so for several months uh, as he began to look for a new congregation that would take him in. And he gradually he left and went to uh, Stockbridge, on the very western frontier, um, near, uh, yeah, on the west, the Berkshire area of Massachusetts. Um, sometimes Edwards' dismissal is cited as a, a reason against Congregationalism. Um, and uh, I think that perhaps really the issue is not so much with Congregationalism as it is the danger of having unregenerate church membership. That, I think, is the real danger. Not Congregationalism. Uh, God still works through His people corporately, and I think that's really important, um, but it's really not an issue. Uh, that's not the main issue. Um, but during this time period, revivals were occurring th- up and down the seaboard, and uh, I've spent a lot of time on Jonathan Edwards, probably because I love him so much. But we will go on to sorry, we'll go on to uh, George Whitfield here. I'm sorry. George Whitfield was born 1714. He was a little bit younger than Edwards. At 21, he was a student at Oxford, and he um, seems to have been converted by reading some uh, literature by Henry Scogel. He was friends with Charles and John Wesley, a part of the Holiness Club, uh, as we talked about last Sunday. Um, Later on in his life, the Wesleys and Whitfield diverged. Um, the Wesleys began to embrace uh, doctrines that Whitfield felt uncomfortable with. Uh, Whitfield was much more of a reformed uh, soul, whereas the Wesleys were starting to embrace some of the the newer teachings of Jacob Arminius um, from the continent, from the Netherlands, and so he was feeling a little bit. And and that created a rift between the two, which I won't go into in full detail here. I just want to note that he was a Calvinistic preacher, um, but as he preached in New England, um, thousands of people responded to the gospel as he was preaching up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, He was a gifted teacher. Whitfield was a very skilled order. jonathan edwards's wife sarah said this as she listened to whitfield preach because he came to northampton and preached in jonathan edwards pulpit she said whitfield makes less of the doctrine than our american preachers generally do and aims more at affecting the heart he's a born orator it's wonderful to see what a spell he casts over an audience by proclaiming the simplest truth of the bible I've seen upwards of a thousand people hang on his words with breathless silence. Um, when she says that he doesn't spend a lot of time on the doctrine, it doesn't mean that he was not doctrinally sound. It just means that the sermon structure, uh, the Puritan pulpit would have a doctrinal sep- section of explanation, and then they would have like an improvement section of how it can have some application. And then there would be a very pointed, I would say, more pointed application uh, to the listeners at the end. And uh, so he, she was just talking about his style was a little bit different. Um, additionally, uh, English actor-playwright David Garrick remarked that Whitfield could make men weep or tremble by his varied utterances of the word Mesopotamia. Just because the way he could uh, vocalize that. <laughs> Uh, it's said that even unbelievers like David Hume thought that it was worth going 20 miles to hear him speak. Um, he was also a friend of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, when when Whitfield preached in Philadelphia, uh, Franklin uh, estimated. He looked at the he took uh, crowd samples and counted people by a certain block in the town. You know, as people were fanning out through the city blocks to hear him speak, he estimated that. His voice carried to thirty thousand people uh, without any amplification, uh, and uh, just a remarkably gift. In fact, uh, his uh, his body was exhumed, and later scientists took his skull to analyze the vocal the cavities inside to see how it was possible that he could speak to that many people. Um, but it's estimated that nearly eighty percent. of Americans living in the colonial period had heard him speak. 80%. And that's pretty significant. Um, It's estimated that he preached to 650,000 people per month during 1739, or literally 20,000 people a day. That's incredible, the amount of preaching he did. Um, But I want to just take a moment to... uh, Pass on to. Oh, I keep doing that. Sorry. I want to keep. I want to. I want to. I want to think and assess something that sometimes comes up about Edwards and also Whitfield is that they both were slave owners, and this might rattle some people. Um, both Edwards and Whitfield were entangled with the evil of their day, and there is no question about that. They both owned, bought, and sold. Uh, Slaves as property for Jonathan Edwards part. He owned one slave 1731 he traveled to Newport, Rhode Island to 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 purchase a 14 year old girl uh, for 80 pounds sterling and Additionally, when other another pastor faced criticism from his parishioners for owning slaves Edwards defended slavery as an institution However, he did speak against the slave trade as being a wicked vice. And he even in his own congregation allowed nine African Americans into full uh, membership in his church. So he didn't keep them outside the church. Um, But this was the time period in which they lived. Uh, George Whitfield also had a plantation in Georgia. And his rationale for having slaves work it was that the profitability of that plantation also provided for orphans and so he he he, and that's how he that's how they thought um whitfield did interact on a spiritual level with with slaves and he he was not condescending he in fact uh he showed a a spiritual concern for their eternal souls and many would come to him regularly to visit um, and some have argued that Edwards and Whitfield's view of slavery can hardly be surprising, and it is—it is the day in which they lived; it was the air which they breathed. Um, but nevertheless, uh, their lives are filled with complexity, and uh, that is for sure. Uh, Edwards did make a case for cessation of the slave trade, but I find it very remarkable that his son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., was very active. Uh, calling for the end of slavery in his generation. So, uh, what we do know is that the Bible is clear that uh, race-based slavery is a heinous sin, and it should not be tolerated uh, for sure. But there are people who came to the Lord in spite of the great wickedness in that time period. And I just want to also point out Phyllis Wheatley. Uh, Phyllis Wheatley, um, in 1761, it's suggested that she perhaps was stolen from her parents in Africa and was transported across to the American colonies uh, when she was maybe seven or eight years old. Um, she was purchased by John Wheatley, and so was given the name Wheatley as, a, as her inherited name. And John Wheatley was a Boston merchant, and his, his wife, uh, Susanna, uh, was given Phyllis as a, an aid to her in her home. Um, but the Wheatleys encouraged Phyllis to pursue, pursue education. They noticed that she was very gifted with literature. And uh, over time, uh, the Wheatleys set uh, Phyllis free in 1773 and continued to kind of be a patron for her because those who were being released from slavery, especially females... It would have been very difficult for them to find gainful employment as a free woman, given the nature of the time period. So they supported her as a patron, even though they allowed her to have freedom and to do what she wanted. Uh, Phyllis uh, encountered the preaching of George Whitfield, for example, and was converted and became a believer in spite of everything she experienced. And uh, she wrote this poem, I'll just read it. It says, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God and there's a Savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew, some view our sable race with scornful eye, their color is diabolic, diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes black as cane may be refined and join the angelic train.'" And that was her testimony. And this is what a testimony. But she's only one example. There were many others who did come to faith in spite of the great evils that uh, uh, we have inherited. Um, So the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening, um, was a significant... It was significant. um, Ordinary means were used. Preachers were preaching the Word of God. Uh, People were encouraging uh, to come to the gathered congregation, and there was extreme, extraordinary fruit that was seen. Let's look at the, um, the Second Great Awakening now, and I'll try to keep my marks shorter here. Um, churches after the War of Independence um, faced difficulties on the eastern seaboard. A lot of congregations and towns had been really decimated because of the war. A lot of congregations saw many men not return home. And uh, there was new lands being opened up to the west, and people decided that uh, they needed to move west and to find a new life after the war. And during this time period, it's estimated that perhaps 10% of the population belonged formerly to a local church. That's pretty slim. So from the First Great Awakening, high uh, church membership was very high. But by the time the war had occurred, things had been decimated, people were starting to become transient, and people were not rooted in congregations. And this led to the need to kind of engage with a new paradigm. People were, were not tied to those local churches. And Baptists and Methodists... Began to establish themselves as leaders in engaging these people as they were in transience. Um, uh, new measures were introduced during this period, and some of those new measures can be found in the Cane Ridge Revival of 1801. In 1801, Cane Ridge, uh, Kentucky, uh, missionaries and tenor missionaries planned a series of protracted meetings known as camp meetings. And many people would gather to hear preachers, um, and they were out in outlying areas. They weren't in the city. It wasn't in a city area. And there were electrifying results that occurred. And a lot of those excesses that were seen in the First Great Awakening were also duplicated uh, in the Second Great Awakening. And uh, so during this time period, um, there is a, a man that kind of represents this time period, of the Second Great Awakening, and his name is Charles uh, Finney. Charles Finney. That is a great picture. He's got electrifying eyes. Can you imagine looking at those eyes coming at you from the pulpit? I think I'd walk down the aisle. Uh, but Charles Finney was born in Connecticut, 1792. Um, he was converted in 1821, and only two years later, Think about that. Only two years later, he was ordained as a Presbyterian minister. Just two years after conversion. Um, They must have seen him to be particularly gifted. uh, But from 1824 to 27, he worked as an itinerant evangelist throughout New York, um, upstate New York, just above us, um, uh, to the west towards. towards Seneca, the Seneca County and some of those counties out that way. Um, But he uh, he oversaw significant revivals, multi-week campaigns, and uh, yet he faced a lot of criticism from his presbytery over his writings and revivals, so much so that he left the Presbyterians and joined the Congregationalists. And in 1837... Finney joined, ultimately, the faculty of Oberlin College in Ohio and uh, became uh, part of that faculty. Finney died in 1875, but he's probably the greatest, the most well-known evangelist of this time period and highly influential in American Christianity. He's sometimes called the father of modern revivalism. But I need to touch point on some of his uh, theology, just so you're aware of it, um, His theology in general, Finney ardently rejected Calvinism. And in particular, he denied imputation of Christ's righteousness. And he also denied penal substitution and insisted upon a moral governance theory of the atonement. Let me just read just an excerpt from his writings. And I want to ask you a question where we might have heard some of this before. He wrote the doctrine of imputed righteousness or that Christ's obedience to the law was accounted as our obedience is founded on a most false and nonsensical assumption. That Christ's righteousness could do no more than justify himself. It can never be imputed to us. It was naturally impossible then for him to obey on our behalf. Is this problematic? Can you see how this would be a problem? Uh, it's a, really what it is is a denial of the transfer of original sin now we 're talking about the righteousness of Christ, but on the reverse side, if if Christ can 't give us his righteousness, then neither does Adam give us our sinfulness. and what he 's saying is that we don't have and nothing is imputed to us, we all have to do it on our own. and that is essentially parallel to a Catholic doctrine that we had seen um, that was the denial of imputation through justification by faith alone. Finney rejected the traditional Protestant view of justification and downplayed uh, the one-time nature of justification. Listen to this. He says, Whenever he sins, that is a person, he must, for that time being, cease to be holy. This is self-evident that whenever he sins, he must be condemned. He must incur the penalty of the law of God. The Christian, therefore, is justified no longer than he obeys and must be condemned whenever he disobeys, or antinomianism is true. Unless he repents, he cannot be forgiven. In these respects, then, the sinning Christian and the unconverted sinner are on precisely the same ground. Do you see what he's saying there? Basically, you have to upkeep your salvation, and it becomes a performance-based necessity, and that's dangerous. Finney vehemently rejected depravity and insisted believing sinners could immediately repent on their own without any aid of the Holy Spirit. Um, So Finney had harshly uh, criticized Presbyterians, uh, I guess the old stereotype that Presbyterianism tends to lack emotional fire, as was true back then, uh, Presbyterians do tend to be much more cerebral in uh, their the way they analyze and think through scriptures. Um, but he 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 did, was not accepted in the end by his own his own ordaining council. Um, so. He also talked uh, about revival as having its own theology, and I just want to read an extract from uh, what he wrote called Lectures on Revivals of Religion. 1835, he said, "...a revival of religion is not a miracle according to another definition of the term miracle, something above the powers of nature. There is nothing in religion beyond the ordinary powers of nature." It consists entirely in the right exercise of powers of nature. It is just that, nothing else. When mankind becomes religious, they are not enabled to put forth exertions with which they were unable to put forth before. They only exert powers they had before in a different way and use them for the glory of God. And so what he was saying is that the new birth is not a miraculous occurrence It's a movement of your will to choose to be correct. Yes. Yeah. Now he didn't, wouldn't say that the Holy Spirit was totally absent, but he would say that in the end, it just comes down to your what you want to do. And that was uh, what he would call that would be called a new measure in terms of how he began to think and articulate responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a significant difference from the prior generation that experienced the first Great Awakening. Uh, Finney placed uh, uh, a lot of confidence in new methods to be able to get people to respond to the gospel. Um, He employed what was called the anxious bench. When he had his tent meetings, he had a particular place at the front of the auditorium where those who were anxious about their spiritual state could come and be addressed Publicly, but also individually. Now, I, I can't hardly imagine this happening today where someone would voluntarily say, I'm under great weight of conviction and I'm going to come and sit basically at the platform and have the evangelist address me in front of the crowd. But what that was, was a, I guess, a way of showing people, I guess, teaching them, this is the way in which you respond to the gospel. Um, It was called the anxious bench um, that was used. Um, The altar call uh, was developed during that time period where he called people to come to the front to make decisions for Christ. Um, And the protracted meeting in which they planned nightly revivals that lasted for weeks or more. Um, Finney moved away from associating with particular congregations that are already in the community, he would just come in with his, uh, he would come in and basically step and announce that they're having meetings and he would diss the local congregations. Uh, And it was uh, not a a great way to to work it out, to be honest. Um, But... Finney's revivals themselves did not produce much lasting fruit. In fact, Finney himself began to recognize that his new methods really didn't produce the results that he had thought. Um, there are territories, large, there are about 25 counties in upstate New York, kind of just south of Syracuse, uh, that's where the majority, and then also over towards the Erie, down, down, down that section, that are called the burned-over districts, in which Finney would come in, and then next year he would come in, and then he would come in a third time, and then just people were burnt out. And they said, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. And it, they became so hardened. In fact, uh, five of the major cults uh, that are well known today originated from those counties, uh, uh, even uh, Milleriteism. Um, we have Joseph Smith came from there, Jehovah's Witnesses came from there. Uh, just just a very devastating uh, events that occurred. So really, what this all highlights is, you know, what is true conversion? And I think we have a challenge even today to understand what that actually is. Um, often conversion is described as a decision to follow Christ. I think that we do people disservice if we simply equate that with their own uh, force of will. There needs to be a work of the Holy Spirit that sustains and brings people continuing perseverance in the midst of difficulties. And um, even as we call people to respond to the Gospel, I think we have to be very careful of pragmatism, of gimmickry, and trying to just make it as palatable and easy as possible for people to just to be you know, coming in the gate. Um, that doesn't mean we, we put a fence in front of the gate necessarily. <laughs> we don't grease it, so to speak. We let, we let the gospel do its own work in people's hearts and lives and, and call people to repentance. Um, but I think we, this highlights continual challenges uh, that we have with making the gospel clear. So thank you again for coming today. Uh, Next week we're going to look at uh, the rise of missions in the Protestant church and also uh, millennialism. All right, thank you for coming.